0: hi welcome to the two journeys podcast this is episode 31 in the book of hebrews titled looking forward to the heavenly country where we discuss hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16. i am joel harford and i'm here with pastor andy davis andy we are in the hebrews hall of faith chapter 11 and we talked last week about abraham and sarah and how they demonstrated their faith what do we see here in verses 13 through 16 that highlight the life of faith?
1: Joel, I can't tell you how excited I am to be able to talk about these verses today. These are some of the most exciting, thrilling verses really in the whole epistle on the life of faith and the consummation of the life of faith in heaven and how much the world, without hope and without God in the world, needs Christians to live like this, aliens and strangers in this world, knowing we're not going to get it in this world. We are looking ahead to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We're looking ahead to our reward. Our reward, we don't expect it in this world. And if we really imbibe these kinds of mentalities, the, the willingness to suffer, to go as missionaries, to go in situations that we as Americans that are so used to a comfortable standard of living would consider greatly substandard, doesn't matter. What matters is we're called on to serve the Lord. And even if we're not called to leave this comfortable Western lifestyle, it's all how we live in that world. Uh, And to have the mentality of an alien and stranger, I can't wait to talk about these verses. It's going to be thrilling. Yeah,
0: I'm excited as well. Well, I'm going to read out loud verses 13 through 16. And just by way of context, the author had just talked about Abraham and Sarah, And previously, uh, some of the the heroes of faith before the flood. And so he begins verse 13 by saying, these all died in faith. So that's who he's talking about. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking... Of the land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city so my first question to you just a general question is what do these verses teach us about our perspective on earthly life
1: this is vital for us we need to see things by faith and so faith i've taught for years is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities past present and future so for me i want to look at this world with the eyes of faith i don't want to just look at the this world with physical eyes with the five sense perceptions that we get as let's say scientists So we uh, see around us things and hear and smell and taste and feel these things, and that's it, as though we're materialist or atheist. No, there is an invisible spiritual world that surrounds us at every moment, and there is a world to come. But We can't see that world to come except by faith. But if we do see that world to come, it will totally transform the way we live in this present world. So, these verses challenge me to live every moment of my life by faith. And that's what the author's doing here. He's talking about those who live by faith. Uh, quoting Habakkuk, uh, that we will live by faith, that we will be justified by faith and live by faith, as Habakkuk uh, chapter two, verse four says, um, that that it is only by the life that comes from faith that will result in eternal life. And so honestly, the righteous will live by faith and those, if we uh, turn back from it, we will be destroyed. So that's where it ended in chapter 10. He wants, the author of Hebrews, wants these Jewish professors of faith in Christ to still live by faith they're under pressure Uh, we've talked about the context again and again the author to Hebrews is writing to Jewish people who had made a profession of faith uh, in Christ and they were being persecuted Uh, some of them were being incarcerated they lost their freedom some of them had lost their possessions and earlier It seems like these Hebrew Christians had, uh, they were fine with it. They knew that their inheritance was yet to come. They didn't mind uh, the confiscation of their property or even being incarcerated because they knew that they uh, had an eternal and lasting reward coming. But they were starting to lose that. And so the author is calling them again to a supernatural life of faith. And so the Holy Spirit, having written all this down through the author and made certain that it made it into the canon of the New Testament, he wants us to live the same way.
0: What does it mean to live like a stranger or an exile on the earth? Because the text says that uh, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth.
1: Yeah, it's vital for us to see that this world we live in is temporary. First and foremost, we've already talked about this in the Book of Hebrews. It is appointed for each one of us to die once, and after that to face judgment. So, at the moment of death, everything we cherished physically in this world we will lose. We're going to we're going to say goodbye to all of it. That means godly spouses, children, relatives, friends, possessions, clothing, houses, you know, entitlements, and talents, and positions, and esteem in this world. All of those things we so cherish in this physical world. We're going to say goodbye to all of it at death. And then also we keep in mind at the second coming of Christ. When everything in this world will be consumed by fire, even the elements will melt in the heat, as Peter tells us. If we realize that, that should affect the way we live. We shouldn't be materialistic, consumeristic. We shouldn't be selfish. We shouldn't be living for pleasure, entertainment, hobbies. We should be living a different kind of life. And so for me to be an alien and a stranger, the word alien means this is not your home. We have a passport from another country. And so I remember when Christy and I and our kids were missionaries in Japan and the Japanese are very, very aware of two categories of people in this world, Japanese and non-Japanese. That's basically the two categories of the world. And we were non-Japanese, clearly. We were living in a, a, one of the smaller cities in Japan, Tokushima, and we would just walk down the street and the Japanese kids who were not as socially polished as the as the adults, the, probably the adults were thinking it, but the kids would say it, they would point at us and say gaijin da, which is non-Japanese over there. You know, it's like, we're aware <laughs> we're aware that we're not japanese and and just to have that that gaijin da you know da means over there or there's a there's a gaijin uh, non japanese to do it for ourselves i'm i'm not earthly to some degree say that to yourself i am an alien and a stranger here this world is not my home christ is my home and heaven is my home and if you have that mentality it's going to affect the way you live
0: yeah I remember reading uh, one time in a journal, I think it was a sermon, I think, by J.D. Greer, and he talked about, he was preaching from 1 Peter, where, of course, Peter calls them the exiles. And he talked about three different types of travelers to a foreign country. You have the tourist who goes in, snaps some photos, you know, has a good time, and then leaves. Uh, and then you have the, the one who just does complete citizenship and assimilation, where they go in and they, and they adopt all the ways and means of the culture, and they become one with the culture said, and then you have the exile, and they're there. They have a heart to do good, but they, in their heart, they belong somewhere else. And he said, that's what the Christian life is like. We're not like the tourists who, you know, ah, no big deal. This is all going to burn. You know, we're just going to snap a few picks and leave. But we also are not going to assimilate and... And uh, and just adopt all these cultural values. Instead, we're we're the exiles. We want we seek good, but we know that this is not our home. We're, mm-hmm. Our home is in heaven.
1: Yeah, I first it was really helpful. That's very powerful. First Corinthians seven, twenty nine through thirty one. That's a very important section in First Corinthians. Paul's there dealing with marital issues, single people, should they get married or not? Married people that may be discontent in their marriage and be tempted to get a divorce. Just all of that, even slaves in their in their servitude, and he says. Uh, basically teaches Christian contentment and that mentality of an alien and stranger. He says, from now on, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, not dependent on them. This world is not my home. Even your marriage. uh, To say, you know, I love my wife uh, or a, a godly wife can say I love my husband. They are such a conduit of blessing, but he or she is not my life. Christ is my life. Heaven is my home.
0: Yeah. Verse 13 opens up by saying, these all died in faith. What does it mean to die in faith?
1: I think what it means, and it's vital for the, uh, the audience that the author's writing to, but die, they died still committed to their faith perspective, still trusting God for promises that had not been fulfilled. They died in hope, believing in those promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They died with that assurance still intact. And that's vital. We're going to talk a lot about this uh, going forward. There's a lot of deathbed perspective here. You know, we've got the deathbed perspective of the patriarchs coming up, where you've got um, Isaac in bed, blessing by faith, blessing Jacob. Jacob in, in, in bed, uh, giving a blessing as well. So you've got this deathbed perspective coming up in Hebrews. And so the idea is, you know, for you, listener of this podcast, picture yourself in your deathbed. What will it mean for you to die in faith? What it means is you're gonna put on display to the medical personnel that are standing around your bed, to your relatives who are there with tears coming down because they know that the time's near and they're going to miss you, that's fine. But they need to see in your demeanor and your countenance, this world is not my home and I am still filled with hope, believing my future is bright. That's what hope is, hope is a feeling. It's a sense in the soul that the future's bright. For us as Christians, Christian hope is future's bright based on the promises of God. So these all died still believing God for the promises. My future is bright. It's like you're dying. You're down to your last minutes. My future's bright. So it's all based on resurrection, it's based on life after death.
0: Man, as you're saying that I'm just thinking of what a polar opposite this is from, I think, two or three podcasts ago, we talked about those who died with a fearful expectation of judgment. And it's just the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. And there are even atheistic, secular, successful people who know that the end is near and and they're dying with bitter regrets that they're leaving behind such an incredibly awesome life, Uh, an amazing spread, beautiful real estate, just scenic vistas and prosperity and success. But now their time's up. And you hear these rich people without any faith perspective just would trade half of their wealth, maybe two, three quarters of their wealth for another 10 years. They could just have 10 more years. But what would it, they had the 10 years, the last 10 years. They had it. What difference would it make? But they've lived for this world and now they have bitter regrets that their life, which is this world, their life is almost over. For us, it's the opposite. Our life hasn't even begun yet. And so these all died in faith, filled with hope that the future is bright.
0: Yeah, that's powerful. It says... They did not receive the things promised, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. So we already talked about the strangers and exiles. And so I want to focus on it saying that they did not receive the things promised. What did they not receive?
1: Well, let's let's keep it simple. They didn't receive the land. All right. Um, you remember back in Genesis 15 when, when there was a promise made to Abram, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He took God took him out and had him look at the starry night sky and said, do you see all those stars? Count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. And Abram heard that promise, believed it, and was credited to him as righteousness. But then God went to the next step. He said, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants, to you and to your descendants. The, the, the key part for me is the first part. I'm going to give to you, Abram, this land that you're traveling in. Now, he could have added at that point, I'm going to give you this land that you're presently traveling in as an alien and a stranger. The inhabitants of this land consider it theirs, and they look on you as a sojourner. And so there might have been some Middle Eastern hospitality going on where they're putting up with you and your tents and your flocks and herds, and they're not coming and making war against you, but it's their land. And so when the time came for Sarah to be buried, Abraham had to dicker with the inhabitants of the land to get a cave where he could bury his wife. And that's the whole point of that chapter. I think it's, uh, I don't remember, uh, Genesis 24 or something like that, where they're going back and forth and back and forth, dickering in, in a kind of a Middle Eastern bizarre sort of way. You know, uh, it's, it's so much. But what's that between friends? You know, and they're going back and forth. It's like, uh, it's like how, that's how what you... What
0: is 400 yeah, shekels of silver yeah,
1: between friends? Why well, should I shouldn't even yeah. mention such a specific sum? You know, this kind of thing while they're drinking tea together. But what's the point of all that? The point why Moses and the Holy Spirit through Moses wrote that is like, yeah, you don't own the land. This is the land that Almighty God promised. Now, you go back to Genesis 15. He said, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants this land, and you will be heirs of it. He said, how do I know that I shall gain possession of it? And then he did that covenant cutting ceremony where the fire pot came in and moved between the pieces alone, a solitary covenant. Abram didn't walk through. It wasn't a covenant. It wasn't a dual covenant between the two of them like a wedding is, a husband, and wife making promises to each other. There were no promises being made by Abraham. There was a promise being made unilaterally by Almighty God. And the idea of the covenant cutting ceremony is these pieces were spread out. And the two that would be uh, making a covenant, let's say two kings to not go to war with each other, they would walk through uh, the pieces of the covenant effectively saying, may this happen to me if I break this covenant. May I be blown to bits. Well, the fire pot comes down in Genesis 15 representing almighty God and he moves alone through the pieces. Go back to the original question. Abram asked, how do I know that I will receive the land? God's saying, may I be blown to bits if you don't get this land. You and your descendants. Now it's time for Abraham to die. Hadn't received the land yet. Okay, so at that point, it's like, did you break your promise to me? No, no, there is life after death. It's the the same thing that Abraham said concerning his son Isaac to the servant. We're going to go up and he's going to kill Isaac. He's going to obey God. He intended to go up and kill his son because God told him to do it. But he was convinced, and we'll talk about it later in Hebrews, that God would bring him to life. And so he said, we will go, the boy and I will go up and worship, and we will return to you. So I think he just believed in life after death. And he believed that God would, in the next world, give him the promise he had made. So he died in faith believing, but had not received his inheritance. So for us as Christians, we're part of that. We're part of that you know, blessed are the meek, Jesus said, for what? They will inherit the earth. So we have an inheritance coming, but the real inheritance is almighty God, a full experience of God face to face. So we will die not having received our full inheritance. We never saw God face to face. We had a deposit, a foretaste of heavenly glory through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We never saw him. We never saw God. And we didn't get our resurrection bodies. We didn't get resurrected earth. We don't get any of it. So we can die knowing we've not received the full promise. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, all of these died not having received the promise.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you some questions related to 14 through 16. Verse 14 says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. I think speak thus means that they're dying in faith, looking forward to the heavenly country. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the question I want to ask you is, um, right now, it seems like Our civilization is kind of falling apart, right? You know, quite mildly. So, but it reminds me of a time um, in the in the Roman Empire when uh, you know there was a time when when Constantine came to power and people like Eusebius thought that the kingdom of God was now on Earth. And then, when the Romans first, you know, sacked—oh, excuse me—when the um, I believe the Visigoths sacked uh, sacked Rome, then it was they felt the world was crumbling, and that's when Augustine began to pen the City of God. And uh, basically telling people to look forward to the, the heavenly city and not the city of man. Well, I think that perspective needs to be readopted now. Uh, you know, the whole God and country, America as a light on the hill, um, was really, I feel like it was people really hanging on to this land uh, so ha- and, and not looking to the heavenly city. So how do these verses help us to reorient ourselves to a biblical worldview and assess our society right now?
1: Yeah, well, that's a big question, Joel. I mean, thats it's hard for me to, to kind of wrap my, my mind around all that. We just have to go back to some basic things that eschatology, future, uh, you know, future things, that's an aspect of theology that teaches us what's to come. And uh, what is to come is the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction. Um, So every element, all the elements, the stoicheia, the Greek word as related to atoms, all the atoms are going to, in some sense, melt. And I believe that there's going to be a reconfiguration, and I would use even the language of a resurrection of the present earth. Or else, to some degree, God didn't keep his promise to Abraham. Because in Genesis 13, he said, walk around this land, look at it, I'm going to give this to you and to your descendants. So in the same way I can say my body will be resurrected, this earth will be resurrected. So th- my body will be in heaven, but in resurrected glorified form. So, Or, or else it's an entirely a new creation ex nihilo. And that is, you know, the body that is sown, it is raised. Sown, raised. There's a con- continuity but difference. Same thing with the earth. The earth will be sown and raised, or else God didn't keep his promise to Abram.
0: It doesn't make sense with the groaning in Romans 8, yeah. right? The creation waits with eager longing. It's going to be not... To be just annihilated? Yeah, or to no, be resurrected. To be
1: resurrected. So there's got to be, in some mysterious sense, a, uh, a continuity. All right. So for me, as I look around the mess of this world, we look around the difficulties, it shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's the effect of sin and the corruption that's around us. And yet we see common grace, beauty, the the beauty of the earth and the blessings that we see that we know that God has left enough evidence of his creativity and his goodness to say, you know, the new world is gonna be perfect. So we, we ought to realize there is continuity and difference and we are called on to be stewards of this earth and stewards of our present reality. But all of this is temporary and we need to have that alien and stranger mentality and realize this present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and will be resurrected. And so what really matters here are the souls of the people around us, people who are lost, people who are dying and going to hell. That's eternal. And uh, our temporary situation is really just the, uh, the canvas on which this tapestry or this painting, sorry, this masterpiece of, of redemptive history is being painted. But honestly, um, you know, to spend a ton of time making this present physical world better is a waste of time. It's not Christian. It's not biblical. You know, the author here says if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. I think you, you must think about that kind of crescent-shaped journey that people made from Ur of the Chaldees or Babylonia or whatever, up along the fertile Tigris and Euphrates, Mesopotamia, the middle uh, between the two rivers, and then arcing down along the coastline of uh, the, the, east, uh, the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea where there's water, water, water. And so people aren't going directly across the desert. That would be death. Um, so they're... That was a journey they made, and you remember how Abraham sent his servant back up that journey, you know, reversing that crescent-shaped journey back to get a wife, uh, Rebecca, for uh, his son Isaac, not from these women here, these these pagan women. We're going to go back up to his relatives and all that, so they could have gone back. God had told Abram, leave your country, and leave your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And he said, do not take my son out of this land, but you go, the servant, and you go back and find a wife.
0: Isaac needs to stay.
1: Yeah, he's got to stay. And it was a big deal when through the famine, Jacob uh, and his family left and went to Egypt. But he had to be told directly by God to do it. And that's where the Exodus all came, to go back to the promised land. So they would have had opportunity to go back up to Babylon, which is a fertile area. They could have made a home there, etc. It's like, no, it was a big deal to leave there and go to the promised land. So if we're talking physical, a place where you can set up shop and have, you know, enough to eat and do well, you would have had opportunity to go back. No, no, no. We're waiting for a future heavenly home. That's what he's talking about here.
0: Yeah. And that ties in perfectly. His point with the context is, Hey, if you want to go back, go back to Judaism. But that's not what they did. They
1: They didn't go back because they go forward to Christ. Very good connection there. I love that, Joel.
0: So it says they looked forward to the better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So please talk about the the better country they desire and then God
1: preparing yeah. place for us oh there's so much to talk about first of all it's just incredible that it says um, because they had this faith perspective and they're looking because of that therefore on the basis of that god is not ashamed to be called their god it's exactly the opposite in mark eight thirty-eight, when jesus says if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his father's glory that's the opposite So if you're ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of his words, he'll be ashamed of you on judgment day. But in this case, God is saying, I'm not ashamed to be associated. I I am willing to be called the God of Abraham. I mean, that's ludicrous. Abraham's flesh and blood. He's a bit of dust created and God breathed air into his lungs and all that. But God's not ashamed to be identified. I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. I'm not ashamed of it because look at who they were. They were aliens and strangers. They were, they were men who were looking forward to heaven. So I am willing to be called their God. That's amazing. So God's not ashamed. Just like earlier in Hebrews 2, he had said, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he's identified with us. So there's that. On the basis of that faith perspective, God will associate himself with us. So just pause right there. Application. O hearer. Be that kind of person. You, want, you don't want God to be ashamed of you. You want to be an otherworldly Christian who doesn't live for this world, who lives for the next world. Be that kind of person, and God will not be ashamed to be called your God. But then it says powerfully that he has prepared a city for them. That word prepared is so powerful, so powerful. There's so many verses that talk about that. Probably the most famous um, where Jesus says, um, you know, do not let your hearts be troubled, John 14 Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. It's awesome. Jesus is preparing. For 2,000 years, you've been preparing a place. And the same thing, there's so many words of prepared where, where the messengers of the king are going out because there's a wedding banquet for the son and, and the oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. He's prepared the banquet. So there's that prepared language. Or in Revelation 21, where it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride prepared for her husband. Later in Revelation 21, it says that the bride has prepared herself and gotten herself ready. Uh, it says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared good works in advance that we should walk in them. Uh, it said to James and John, Jesus said, uh, to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant, but it is for those for whom the Father has prepared those places. So there's all this prepare, preparation going on. And so what I think all this, you put it all together, what's, what's the work in progress? It's the Church of Jesus Christ, also known as the New Jerusalem, the city that's getting built. It's, uh, it's a city and a bride. It's a people. It's a temple being built with living stones. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the elect chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed. Let's stick with the architectural image, redeemed like living stones quarried out of Satan's dark kingdom. They are dressed and made ready, prepared, and set in the wall of a heavenly temple that's going to be the dwelling of God forever. That's what's rising. Ephesians 2 says, rising to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or the bride getting ready for her wedding day. She's making herself beautiful. She's doing her hair. She's doing her makeup. She's getting her jewelry. She's getting her dress. Everything is beautiful and she's never looked better. And so the new Jerusalem descending like a bride prepared for the wedding banquet. So putting it in quite simple language, when we come to faith in Christ, trusting in him, and our sins are forgiven, and then we are progressively sanctified in holiness and putting sin to death by the Spirit. And when we are the external journey, the two journeys that we talk about, internal journey of holiness, external journey of evangelism and missions when we're winning the lost and then helping them to get holy, helping them to grow in godliness, that is the preparation that's going on. God is preparing a city for us and really preparing us to be the city of God.
0: Yeah, and this... I love how you talk about that. And this really ties in well to the end of the chapter because he says all these, so the author's going to add more and more heroes of faith. And he says all these, though commended to their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us mm-hmm. that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's awesome. So we have to wait until all the redeemed come in yeah. and then the city will be
1: ready. That's why I really believe in an instantaneous totality of resurrection it's resurrection happens for everybody all at once um i know revelation 20 has some difficult difficult passages about a resurrection first and second resurrection i get all that and i don't want to get it complex but i just think we're all of us get it together we all get our resurrection bodies and we get to be in that resurrected world all of us together the resurrected world doesn't exist right now resurrection bodies except for jesus first fruits does not exist right now so only together with us would they be made perfect. And so there is that sense of a, a perfection yet to come. But let's let's go back for a second to God preparing the city. I, I just can't get away from Revelation 21 and the, the detailed descriptions of the New Jerusalem. What a magnificent vision the Apostle John had on the island of Patmos and how God, through the Spirit, through visionary time travel, really, took him ahead to show him the bride descending and how beautiful she was. And it's amazing how much it's tied to the the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the 12 and 12. And there's this sense of actual people who lived actual lives, who had names and who are men of faith and and they are the leaders of the church. And then you've got men and women who are redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ, part of this beautiful family of God, but it's also a city. And so there's, I believe in a physical city because we'll have physical bodies and need to be in a physical place. But there's also a sense in, in which there's a connection with the lives that were lived by the great men and women of God and how they are honored. And there will be memorials, uh, usually it's tied with death, but in this case I'm saying it's tied with courageous life. There will be actual remote memorials of things done in, in the body by faith in the Son of God that will be worthy of esteem and worthy of honor. And that's the New Jerusalem, and it's going to be a magnificent, radiant city, massive in size radiant in glory beautiful and so there is that city but there's also the country the author talks about both so i think for me i love the country i love being out in the mountains and rivers and lakes and 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 all of the beauty of of this world and i think when you look at the new heaven and new earth you know you see both right here in verse 16 you got the city and the country that is to come and god's preparing all of it it's going to be amazing amen it will
0: My final question to you is is a personal question. How has this depiction of the life of faith, specifically being a stranger in an exile, how has this helped you personally um, through your walk with Christ and in this world?
1: Well, Julie, you know I've been thinking about and, and working on writing a book on heaven for several years. I can't get enough of this topic. I can't get enough of thinking about it. It's just a mystery. Even just a second ago, as I was adjusting in my seat here and looking at the verses again, you, you look at at um, a heavenly country. That's as much a contradiction in terms as a spiritual body is in First Corinthians fifteen forty four, where he talks about you know it, the body that is sown is is natural is raised a spiritual body what in the world is a spirit body and i don't really know but there's some union of spiritual and physical that is yet to come and so there is going to be a future country a future world that is so perfectly spiritual there won't be heavens up there and earth's down here. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's all gonna be one. Uh, the new Jerusalem descends. And so God has his throne right in our midst. It's all one, it's all one. And so I, what does it do for me? It just fills me with joy and hope every day. Let me speak, let me speak very personally about my mother. Um, and she is, um, She's right now she's dying. And I'm praying for her to come to a strong faith in Christ. I won't mind if she listens to these words. Um, I don't know how long it'll be. Um, She could live another couple years in her condition. But she has emphysema, and it's just hard for her to breathe, and it's challenging. And she's not a believer. And she said to me, she said to me uh, last week, she was talking about someone she knew pretty well who had died recently. And she said, it's just like you're on a conveyor belt, and you have your time on the conveyor belt, and then you drop off at the end. I was like, well, Mom... That's not how I see it. I, I believe in a world to come. I believe in a, in a beautiful world that's yet to come. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe in a resurrected world. And I am, Mom, I am just so filled with joy and hope at that. And I want you to know that joy and that hope. And that's through faith in Christ. And so the book of Ecclesiastes kind of describes what life is like if there's no resurrection from the dead. Everything's vanity, vanity of vanities. And I felt like I was kind of bumping into that in that conversation with my mom. Time in your conveyor belt, you drop off into the bin at the end. And it's like, yeah, no, no. How has this affected me? It's given me an unsinkable hope every day. I'm like, I can't wait for that future world. But yet it gives meaning to my life right now. The good works, Joel, that you are doing, that I'm doing with our with our wives, with our kids, here at the church, the things that we do together, it, everything matters because we're preparing. We're part of God's preparation of that future world. And that nothing could be more thrilling than that. Life, every moment has meaning because of this future world that's coming. And the connection between the two. It's not just like the severing and something that's entirely new and we don't remember anything we did in the past. No, no. Everything matters. Every day matters. Every insignificant little moment matters. And that gives meaning to life.
0: Amen. I feel the same way. Well, thank you for sharing. That was episode 31 of the book of Hebrews, titled Looking Forward to the Heavenly Country. Please join us next time where we talk about the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 22. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God
1: bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom.